Let me too express uh, my gratitude for your presence. Welcome to the North Church of Christ and our assembly this morning. We're happy to have you here. If you're visiting with us, please feel like you're an honored guest and we'd love to get to know you better when the service is over. So please hang around for just a few minutes and let's uh, get acquainted. The lesson this morning is called, I Searched for a Man. About 10 years ago, I was teaching a men's class in Connersville, and the class was actually based on 1 Corinthians 16. There's a, there's a similar phrase in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13 called, act like a man. And I love the King James Version in that particular instance. It says, quit ye like men. <laughs> it's just a cool phrase, quit ye like men. And so uh, we developed a semester-long lesson series for men on Act Like a Man. And this was one or two of the lessons from Ezekiel chapter 22. So uh, the lesson is not focused on uh, the political movements that are going on in our country right now, although those do need to be discussed. The Bible does talk about those issues. And it's not talking about the macro-societal issues of patriarchy versus uh, feminine culture and all of that, and that probably, too, needs to be discussed. This is talking about uh, the lesson itself, when we get out of the context. The lesson itself is about an individual person. What is it that constitutes constitutes manhood? So let's read the two verses that this lesson is taken from, and then we'll talk a little bit about Ezekiel. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. The book of Ezekiel is a fascinating book. We need to uh, take the time to study it one of these days in, uh, at North. We, we had a oh almost six-month-long study of Ezekiel. It's uh, about 50 chapters, so it, you, you can't do it in... 13 lessons, (laughs) just impossible. But the book of Ezekiel is a fascinating book about the 7th, late 7th century B.C. and the nation of Israel. As part of the nation had already gone into captivity in Babylon. The nation had already divided and the northern kingdom had been disintegrated by Assyria 100 years before. But now the little nation of Judah was all that was left and primarily the city of Jerusalem. Daniel and his faithful friends had already been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel also was in that crowd because he, a contemporary of Jeremiah, was actually in Babylon while Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem. Both prophesied contemporaneously along with Daniel. Daniel was a contemporary of both of these men. And Ezekiel is looking at things from the perspective of being in captivity. 
and prophesying to these people who are in captivity, but most of the nation, at least up until about the 30th chapter, are, uh, most of the people are still in Jerusalem. The final captivity has not occurred. The final battle has not occurred. So there are many, many people who are in Babylon who think they're only going to be there for a short period of time. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel both disabuse them of that in in later chapters. But Ezekiel chapter 22 is a pivotal chapter because in this chapter, uh, in this chapter, Ezekiel tells, God tells Israel from Ezekiel's mouth that there's no one left. There are no faithful people left in the land that are going to stand up and be counted to defend the land. So Judah is going to be invaded. Jerusalem is going to be captured. And the temple is going to be burned and ransacked and all the holy articles carried off by Nebuchadnezzar within 10 years. Second Chronicles 36 and verse 14 summarizes this period of time during the reign of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. All the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. So chapter 22 tells us what does not constitute manhood. And there's a series of things that we could talk about, but I'm going to pick four. I'm going to pick four. And so by kind of looking at the negatives that Ezekiel brings out, we're going to see what the positives are, right? What does God want in a man? Well, we're going to discuss four uh, characteristics of manhood that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel chapter 22. We're going to talk about courage. We're going to talk about love and respect for the holy things that are holy, love and respect for life, love and respect for what is yours, and maybe as important, maybe more importantly, what is not yours. It's not yours. Courage, courage. You know, it takes a lot of courage to stand in the gap What does that mean, stand in the gap? What it means is that nobody else is there. (laughs) There's a gap. It's a military concept, of course. There's a gap in the line. There's a hole in the line. It needs to be filled. Will you fill it? Can you fill it? Do you have the ability, the power, the energy, the courage, most importantly, to fill that gap, to stand in the gap? And, of course, metaphorically, what we're talking about is The gap is to face the enemies of God's people, to face struggles and trials and the dangers that occur regularly in our life. Do you have the courage to do that? When I think of courage, I immediately think of the young man David, right? He was a young man. He was not a baby, (laughs) When the, and he was not an infant when these events occurred. We know that. Just, just read the context of the story in 1 Samuel 17. But he was a young enough man 
that when the giant Philistine Goliath taunted the armies of God, and while other men cowered in fear, David wanted to go up and he approached King Saul. Well, he approached his brothers first and they said, get on home, you little runt. (laughs) What are you doing here? Snooping around. Go back to your sheep. And so David went to Saul, the king. He said, I'll I'll face this evil man. And Saul said to him, you are not able to go up. And David replied in that paragraph after Saul's response, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Wow. And we know the rest of the story. David was successful at defeating Goliath. He did have the courage to face the enemies of Almighty God, and he defeated the giant and went on to become king of Israel. So he had courage. He was a courageous man. But we need to have respect for holy things if we're going to be a man of God. A respect for holy things. In Ezekiel 22, in verse 8, and several verses in that chapter, He says, you have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. I think we understand what the word despise is. But the idea of profane, of course, we think of profanity. Uh, The word profane simply means to make it common. To take something that's special. Just take something that's unique, to take something that is sanctified, set apart, lifted up, made holy by God, and make it common. Uh, Sniff at it, despise at it, wag your head at it. Oh, there's not that much to that. So what? Big deal. But you know, there are holy things. There are holy institutions. The church is a holy institution. Jesus died for it. He died for the church. All of us who are in the church have been cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. It is holy. The church is holy. The institution of marriage is holy. And Ezekiel in this chapter talks about how the men of Judah had profaned marriage through their sexual immorality. Fornication, sexual intimacy before marriage profanes marriage. It makes it common. It makes it of little effect. It doesn't raise it up here. It lowers it 
down here. And of course, adultery. Sexual immorality while married, being intimate with somebody else, is profaning the institution of marriage. But with respect to the church and with respect to worship, I initially think of Leviticus chapter 10. I know we hear that story often. I mean, that's why I'm using it, because if I I've only got 30 minutes, so I've got to hurry up here. I've got to tell you things that you may be familiar with. And we're, most of us, I think, familiar with the story of Leviticus 10. Leviticus 10 may very well be the very first time that sacrifices and incense are being offered by the Aaronic priesthood under the Old Covenant. Because the instructions have been given not only in Exodus, but also in Leviticus. And so now the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, are going to make these offerings. And the text of Leviticus 10, if you read the rest of the chapter, seems to indicate that these men were drunk. They were inebriated. And they were approaching the throne of God in an unsober condition. And as a result of that, they offered strange fire, fire that God had not commanded. God was very specific about what he wanted in offering to him under the Old Testament system. And Nadab and Abihu broke it. I mean, they they offered strange fire. Fire that God had not commanded. And God says to Aaron and he says to Moses, after they have been struck dead, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. So coming into the presence of God and doing something that's different from what he has asked for, something that is strange, that he's not commanded, God says, you're not treating me as holy. And he went on in that chapter later on in verses 8 through 11 to say to Aaron, make a distinction between the holy and the profane so as to teach the sons of Israel that all the statutes which the Lord has spoken The priests were to teach the people so that they would know the difference between what is holy and what is not holy, what is clean, what is unclean, what is sanctified, and what is common. You know, the Bible teaches us today that there is a Lord's Supper, a supper we've just participated in. It's instituted by God. It's instituted by Jesus Christ. What we just did. Jesus said, do it. He said, do it in memory of me. Now, I don't know about you. I'm on some of these sites, you know, on Facebook, these discussion groups and blogs and things. And my wife tells me, just get off of those. Uh, yeah, yeah, Leah's shaking her head. You know, she knows too. 
You know, and on these sites every now and then, and they're supposed to be sites that have members of the church on there. And one of the things that just really peeves me, I suppose, it just ticks me off, is when I hear people denigrating the way we observe the Lord's Supper. Oh, how do you think, you know, just a cup and a drip, or a drip and a drop, or a dip and a drip, or what? You know, they've got some some, uh, language that they use that denigrates the memorial service that we have just been involved in. And they'll say something like, well, you know, when Jesus instituted the feast, they were having a common meal. And so today, what we need to do is we just need to have a big old uh, potluck Let's just have, let's just set up individual tables and we'll just have a breakfast or something or lunch. And then uh, as a part of that lunch, we'll then uh, break out and have the Lord's Supper. That's what they did uh, on that Thursday night in that upper room, right? Wrong. <laughs> that is not what they were doing What they were doing was a special meal. It too was a sanctified, holy meal. It was the Passover meal. You didn't eat just anything at that. You didn't eat eggs and bacon. (laughs) I love eggs and bacon. I get in trouble with bacon. You all know I've been on a diet. I've been pretty successful with it. But bacon gets me in trouble. It really does. And that's not the only food, but it's one of them. Bacon, just love, I love bacon. But eggs and bacon weren't on that menu. You look at Exodus chapter 12. And there were specific things on that menu. It was not a common meal. It was a Passover meal. It was a special meal. And then in that special Passover meal that they were partaking of to remember the passing over of the death angel and their freedom from Egypt, Egyptian bondage, Jesus said, there's another meal. There's a meal in the new covenant I want you to partake of. And he took portions of that and brought it out and said, this is now the meal you're going to partake of. The unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And he says in Luke's account that this is a memorial. It's not a meal. It's not a common meal. It's not even a meal. Meal. It's not even a meal to uh, fill your stomach. In 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, Paul condemns the Corinthian church. For making the Lord's Supper a common meal. He says, go home. Go home to have your eggs and bacon. Go home to have your whatever is on your menu. Ham and eggs, everything, whatever it is. That's where you have your common meal. This is a memorial meal. It's a special meal. It's a holy meal. And so the Apostle Paul says, Or he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Similar to Nate Abinabihu, right? It's holy. It's a holy meal. It's not a common meal. It's not a Passover meal. 
It's a meal that memorializes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have things like that in our, in our society, don't you? Don't, go, go on YouTube and look up, uh, look up the tomb of the unknown soldier and look at some incidences where people have gotten out of line. I mean, they're on there where people did not regard that place as sacred and holy. You know, and those guys that are walking that line, they look awful staid, right? They look awful quiet. You find out what happens when somebody acts out and does not show the reverence that they are, show, that they are meant to show at the tomb of the unknown, shoulder, uh, unknown soldier. You'll see what happens. Ezekiel also talks about respect for life. Respect for life. In verse 3, he says, This city sheds blood in her midst so that her time will come. Ezekiel indicates that the city of Jerusalem run, ran with innocent blood, ran, flowed with innocent blood. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 24, we get a description of the city of Jerusalem, not only at this time, but even prior to that, during the time of Manasseh. And this is when Jerusalem's fate and the nation's fate was sealed. Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. As far as I know, that's the only place in the Bible where this passage occurs, where the phrase occurs, would not forgive. God would not forgive the nation. Why? Because of innocent blood. What specifically had happened? During the time of Manasseh, if you search back into his history, you'll find that at no time, he reigned for over 50 years. At no time in the nation of Israel had child sacrifice to the God of Molech been more prominent. They sacrificed little babies to their idol God. And that is how Manasseh filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And it was still going on in Zedekiah's day. A lot of times we think of this guy right here, Adolf Hitler, as one of the mass murderers, the shedding of innocent blood. And we think of how despicable he was. But he's not, he's not number one. Marxist, various Marxist, Leninist leaders, communist leaders, have murdered over 64 million people. Genghis Khan, 56 million people. Mao Zedong, 34 million people. Joseph Stalin, 19 million people. Adolf Hitler comes in fifth at 18 and a half million people. But you know who's right up there with him? We are. 
the United States of America. This is just the United States. It's not the world. This is just the land of the free, home of the brave. This is just the United States, and it's only since 1973. Now that number, maybe you can't read it, and so I'll spell it out. 63,459,781 abortions since 1973. By the way, you know, people that are being aborted, they are human. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't even think that's an issue anymore, right? Now that we have all these scans and ultrasounds and all that kind of thing. I mean, I mean early on, I remember it. There were people actually suggesting that fetuses were not human. I mean, what are they if they're not human? I mean, but they were kind of a blob or whatever. And now we know how early that children even have a heartbeat and what they look like now. We know what they look like. The blood has flowed in this country since 1973. We, in this country, in just 50 years, have shed as much innocent blood as the most heinous mass murderer in world history. Just think about that. Respect for life. Proverbs 24 and verse 11 says, Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Pray for the unborn. Do whatever you possibly can to save the lives of those people being murdered by these bloodthirsty savages that advocate for this heinous action. God sees. God knows. But respect for yours. That needs to happen too. (laughs) Respect for yours and for what is especially not yours. Because in verse 29, Ezekiel says, the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery. And they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. You know, what we're talking about is we're really talking about coveting. The 10th commandment. Actually, and it's the commandment that Paul had problems with, if you read Romans 7. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You know, it was a problem then and it's a problem now. People that are not satisfied with what they have and what they've been blessed with 
tend to look at someone else and covet or be jealous of what they have. And when they're not satisfied with what they have, they tend to discount it and they don't treat it properly. I'm going to tell you a little story. When I was a landlord back about 30 years ago, I was a landlord for about five years, and um, I got to where I, you know, you, you, you always try to get little tricks of the trade. Who should you rent your property to? Because, you know, you don't want to rent somebody and then six months later you got to rebuild the place, right? So what I would do is I would pull a little trick. What I would do is I would fill out all their paperwork and I said, well, let me go to the car with you and we'll talk on the way. And, and I would go to their car and I would kind of look in and I would... I would take a look at what was in their car, right? And see what kind of condition it was in. And I'm not talking about surface dirt here. Look, I, you know, I had a neighbor, I had a neighbor three doors down. You remember the Reeb Summers, right? The Reeb Summers. And he would wash his car like every other day, right? I mean, wow. I mean, just Gary was his name, Gary Reeb Summers. And uh, he... Boy, it was spick and span all the time. He really cared about that car. But anyway, and so I'm not talking about surface dirt. I'm talking about filth. I mean, I'm talking about dirty, filthy, just poo stuff that you just kind of cringe, you know, when you see that. And, um, you know, I learned that if somebody's willing to let their own property get in that condition. You know, and they won't put a vacuum to it. They won't pick stuff up. You know, it's like a weak old, weak old McDonald fries and stuff, laying, just laying all over, just garbage, right? I mean, if they will do that to their own property, what do you think they'll do to mine? <laughs> so I, I didn't want to rent to those kind of people. No, no, no. You have to have a respect for what is yours and a respect for what is not yours. Now, Brother Lewis, in the class the other night, I don't know if you, and I, I hope I'm not going to cross any lines here with him, because he said it publicly. He said he had a Chevy truck that he was willing to lend out. I don't know if he wants to stand by that or not, because, you know, when you're lending out your truck... And I'm sure he's done it many times. See, the problem is, is that when you borrow somebody's truck, you better remember that it's not your truck. (laughs) It belongs to somebody else. And you better bring it back in better condition than you borrowed it. In other words, if I had a full tank of gas, then you better bring it back with a full tank of gas. And if it was in pristine condition when you borrowed it, you need to bring it back in pristine condition. I know that sounds simplistic, right? I mean, that sounds kind of silly. But that's, that's the attitude at heart of what is going on here. When you don't respect what is yours, and more importantly, what is not yours, you're going to tend to covet. And when you covet, you are going to do things that are not good and not right. And these people were responsible for that kind of action. Well, these are four ideas for you that constitute manhood. 
that constitute what is being a man. We need to be courageous. (laughs) We need to respect what is holy. We need to respect life. And we need to respect what is ours and what is not ours. And when we do that, we will be on the way to being the kind of men and the kind of society that God wants us to be. If there's anyone here this morning that needs to render obedience to the gospel of Christ, you need to change your life, you need to get your life in order, there's time to do it. There's time to do it right now. Ask for the prayers of this congregation. Be baptized in the waters of baptism if that's what you need to do. You have the time now. The door has not been shut. As we talked about in our Bible class this morning, the door will eventually be shut and you won't have time to do the right thing. But you have time to do the right thing now. So if you're subject to the invitation of the Lord and you need to come, please come now while we stand and sing.